With regard to the Russian force buildup, we remain concerned about what we're seeing. And so we continue to monitor very closely the activity there, and we continue to consult with our partners. We call upon Russia to cease their provocations. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And that was the US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin, who's also been in Brussels this week to speak with NATO allies, along with the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Among the topics on their agenda were Iran, Afghanistan and, as you just heard, Russia's build-up of troops near the border with Ukraine. We'll get you up to speed on that with our reporter in Kiev. And also later in the show, you'll meet a member of the European Parliament who sailed solo around the world and is now on a mission to get trash out of the oceans. All of that is coming up in just a moment. But first, let's bring in our podcast panel to analyse a dramatic week in German politics and in talks about the Iran nuclear deal. So the gang's back together. Hello to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hello all. And to Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. So let's dive right into it. Uh, first topic is the German standoff over who should be the nominee, the candidate, uh, the Conservative candidate to run to succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor in the September general election. Matt, you've been following this very closely. It's Laschet versus Söder, so the CDU leader against the leader of the CSU, the smaller Bavarian sister party. We're awaiting a decision at any moment. So let's jump forward for a moment and say, regardless of who gets the nod finally, how much damage do you think this has done to what they call the union, the union between the two parties? I think it's actually done more damage to Armin Laschet, who's the leader of the CDU, of the larger of the two parties. And I think it's done a bit of damage to the wider leadership of that party because they came out in strong support earlier this week of Armin Laschet, whom they just made their leader in January. And I think there was a feeling in the leadership that they could not turn their back on him so soon after electing him, even though Marco Söder is by far the more popular politician, both within the CDU and the CSU and the broader population. There was a poll out this week that showed that less than 4% of Germans have confidence in Laschet's leadership qualities, as they put it in the poll. And that's a pretty dismal result. And that's not the only such finding. It's, it's pretty much across the board. No matter what poll you look at, Laschet is just way behind. And his camp would say, well, you know, polls are just glimpses of time and, and they're really not that significant and we shouldn't make these decisions just according to polls. And yet, if, if you look at the polls over the past year, there's a lot of consistency when it comes to Soda. He's just the more popular politician. In one poll out this week, he even overtook Merkel to become Germany's most popular politician overall. So I think that there is going to be a lot of soul searching that they're going to have to do after this whole process if they decide to go with Laschet, because they're going to be going with somebody who's very weakened into battle. And uh, conversely, I would just close by saying I think that whatever happens, Söder will emerge stronger. Right. But uh, then in terms of unity for that alliance going into the general election, sounds like either way that's quite badly damaged, right? Because you're going to have Söder 
either as the standard bearer and then the bigger party, you know, a section at least of the bigger party, not happy about that. Or you're going to have Lashet as the leader, as you say, not regarded as a strong leader and, you know, a lot of Bavarian and other discontent in the ranks. I think that's one of the open questions is that, you know, you, you have this bifurcation between the leadership of the CDU, which, as I said, is strongly backing Lashet, and then the kind of rank and file of the CDU, which is, you know, clearly more supportive of Serta. So the long-term ramifications of that aren't really clear at this point. But what is clear is that the CDU needs to find better ways of uh, making these decisions because drawing it out for this long and, and just kind of leaving it up to the two party leaders has just led to a very chaotic situation. Mm. Okay, so we'll leave that there and probably come back next week when a decision has been made, assuming a decision has been made. And we should also note that there's another uh, significant decision coming in the coming days on this front. The Greens uh, should choose their candidate for Chancellor. So we'll talk about that after they've made that decision as well. Reem, you wanted to talk about Iran because, as we know, uh, there are these uh, talks ongoing in Vienna. The Americans and the Iranians not in the same room not in the same building all the time anyway, but, you know, sort of this kind of shuttle diplomacy with the Europeans and others in the middle. Where do you think uh, that stands now in terms of the, you know, the prospects of a revival of the Iran nuclear deal? So, you know, these indirect talks that you're talking about between Iran and and the US through basically the E3, the Europeans, the UK, the French and the Germans are in a big question mark situation right now because of something that happened over the past few days, which is on the one hand, an attack on the Natanz reactor in Iran that has been attributed to Israel, although there is no real confirmation of that, of course, officially. So the Iranian officials have said that as a response to that attack, they have now decided to enrich uranium to 60%. And let's be clear, there is no civilian use for 60% enriched uranium. And so clearly, this is a very big, grave, serious step toward a nuclear weapon. And so the question is right now, this is what diplomats from the E3 and the US are trying to determine. You know, is this desire and decision by the Iranians to enrich uranium to 60%? Is it basically the end of the indirect talks? Now, I want to say, even before Matt brings in all of his cynicism to the stable, that from the beginning, of course, all the negotiators that were involved were saying, you know, they've been negotiating with Iran on this issue for 18 years. They were under no illusion that beginning of indirect talks meant that there would be a prompt return to the JCPOA. And so... The reality is today, so we are recording this on Thursday, those involved are supposed to be meeting in Vienna today and tomorrow, Friday. But it is very unclear whether these meetings are going to happen, how they continue, and whether they continue. What they are waiting for as well is the IAEA inspectors uh, sending a report after they've visited the Tans and also after they are able to check on the reality of that kind of enrichment situation with uranium. But one thing I will add is that Officials involved in these negotiations are extremely worried. They're so worried that they're saying that the level of tension is comparable to 2019. And as you will recall, in 2019, we were on a very escalatory spiral. 
when you had ships being taken hostage, being attacked, you had attacks against American bases in Iraq, and we were very, very close to a, a military conflict, and they're worried that we are back there. Mm. Yeah, it does seem like a, a kind of key moment. And I'll put on my Brussels hat and say that, of course, the European External Action Service also plays a central role here. And uh, big shout out to our EEAS uh, listeners. Matt, uh, anything you want to add? Do you want to bring in your cynicism at this point or, or save it for something else? It's not really clear what, what this agreement is is supposed to achieve at the end of the day. And I don't know what in the Iranian behavior over the past 40 years would give anybody confidence that they can be negotiated with in good faith. So, you know, I mean, this is just a way to open up Iran for European companies again. And maybe that will succeed in the short term. But I think in terms of the nuclear program, that the real decisive factor there is, is going to be you know, how Israel responds to the program. And, and, and we saw that again this week where they very forcefully intervened, as it were. Okay, uh, we'll leave it there for this week. Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's talk about Ukraine with our reporter in Kiev, Dan Pelashuk. Hi, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Now, we mentioned the situation in Ukraine at the top of the podcast. Can you just give us a brief sense of why things have escalated so much in the past few weeks? What's changed on the ground? Sure. Well, I think the most obvious thing that's changed on the ground is, of course, the massing of Russian troops along the Ukrainian border uh, or areas near the Ukrainian border on the Russian side, as well as in the Crimean Peninsula, which is, of course, annexed by the Kremlin in 2014. The big question is... Why now? I think there are kind of a number of explanations, a lot. A lot, I think, ultimately has to do with, and certainly this is a theory that's been voiced in, in Kiev, in Washington, and, and among analysts in Moscow, is that this is a way for Vladimir Putin to essentially test President Joe Biden's resolve, test President Volodymyr Zelensky's uh, resolve of uh, the Ukrainian leader, of course, and this is not something that's particularly new or that he hasn't done before. But what we do see that's new is the entrance of Biden onto the political scene. And from the Ukrainian end, on the behalf of uh, President Zelensky, you've seen in recent weeks a number of fairly, I would say, decisive and, and assertive steps in terms of both uh, sort of cleaning up corruption, but also and, and most prominently um, cracking down on basically Russian forces of influence within domestic politics. And the main question here involves this tycoon named Viktor Medvedchuk, who's widely seen to be sort of Vladimir Putin's man in Ukraine. They're very close associates. And Medvedchuk is seen to uh, sort of occupy the, the top of this media and business empire that has kind of fueled a lot of Russian propaganda. So in a sense, I think the one thing that most people agree on is that this tension is a result of Vladimir Putin kind of testing the resolve of both leaders and as well as seeing whether he can possibly seeing whether he can extract any concessions in the uh, Minsk negotiating process. Mm. And what does President Zelensky, what does the Ukrainian government want from the European Union and NATO? We've seen the foreign minister here in uh, Brussels uh, this week uh, holding a series of meetings, including with the US Secretary of State, but also with the NATO Secretary General. What is their strategy when it comes to engaging international allies? What are they hoping for? 
So I think the Ukrainian side is, you know, quite frankly, hoping for as much assistance as it can get. And, you know, this was, I think, made pretty clear by President Zelensky's revisiting, uh, diplomatically speaking, the, uh, the topic of NATO membership for Ukraine. Now, this is not something that is new. Ukraine has been sort of aspiring to NATO membership for a very long time. But he sort of uh, came out and quite, not necessarily forcefully, but very clearly said, you know, we need your help. Of course, the political calculations are much more complex from the European Union and, and from Washington. There's a lot more that goes that's involved in this decision rather than sort of, you know, agreeing or even tentatively agreeing, sure, we're going to kind of get this get this train moving. From the you know, the, the Ukrainian side, in terms of the nitty-gritties, the Ukrainian military has, and actually fairly successfully in the past year and a half, I I'd say, but I wouldn't say personally, but but experts have said, I should, I should clarify that Ukraine has fairly successfully been implementing NATO standards. But I think when it comes down to it, the reality is that it's a very, very distant uh, prospect. Mm. So obviously, a lot of people are making comparisons to 2014 and wondering whether we're heading for, you know, a similar scenario, again, uh, open conflict, if you like. What would you say are the main um, similarities and differences between then and now? I think the main similarities, uh, the main similarity, I'd say, is this this element of kind of tension, international tension, domestic tension, international tension, more so, I'd say, on the global stage. It's sort of, in general, sort of uh, Putin thrives in terms of, uh, thrives on unpredictability, I think, it's, I think it's safe to say. And so that's generally something that's a similarity. A difference is the fact that we may not know exactly what to expect, but we have an idea of what we might expect, right? I mean, 2014, no one really thought that Russia would sort of stoke a war in Ukraine and indeed sort of send its own soldiers in. Now we know that's happened. If we zoom in on, in terms of sort of preparedness from the Ukrainian side, and this is something that I focused my recent story on, the military is in a comparatively different place than it was in uh, this, the Ukrainian military, to be precise, is in a very different place than it was in 2014. Sort of keeping in mind that it basically started from scratch in 2014, right? The military was very weak, hollowed out, um, almost no leadership. Now it's experienced, you know, it's got seven years really of, of either sort of full-on combat experience or low-intensity combat experience. It's better equipped than it was. You know, the government is spending more money on it. There's much more foreign assistance than, than there was in 2014. Then, of course, there's this sort of fighting spirit that a lot of Ukrainians discuss, and that's sort of sustaining basically the strongest point or the big strength, I guess I'd say, of the Ukrainian army. That said, it's still, you know, compared to the Russian Federation's uh, military, it's very under-equipped. But still, I think one thing that most analysts will agree with here is that you know, today the Russian army would, or excuse me, the Ukrainian army would be able to put up some sort of fight and indeed inflict a not insignificant amount of losses on, on the Russian army should it choose to invade, whether overtly or covertly. So that is kind of one major difference, I'd say. Let me ask you a question that um, journalists get asked a lot and sometimes very difficult to describe or quantify. But, um, you know, can you describe the mood in Kiev? I mean, how are people, you know, just kind of in normal life? Is this the main subject of conversation? Can you kind of feel a certain tension or, or do things all feel pretty normal, at least in Kiev at the moment? Actually, that's a fairly easy, easy question to answer, I'd say, because, <laughs> you know, things feel more or less normal. You know, COVID aside, you know, I think this is something that has been kind of a, a recurring theme throughout the, the past seven years of war. You know, it was 
a little bit different in 2014 when the war had just broken out and immediately after the sort of most intense fighting had had ended there was definitely kind of tension across the country and and you know this is something that people were talking about but you know it sort of dissipated not too long after that and in, in the past years you really sort of feel a sense of detachment i guess maybe that's a bit of a too, bit too strong of a word but being in kiev and, and in other cities in ukraine you certainly don't except for the sightings of military folk in fatigues, you know, going through on transport and going through train stations, you see more of them on the street in general. Apart from that, you don't really get the sense that this is a country at war. And now I think that sense sort of still prevails. I think people's attention is much more focused on economic concerns and sort of getting through COVID. But the sort of fighting or rather, you know, imminent fighting, potential imminent fighting and escalating tensions is really not so much a subject of conversation, at least at least in the way that some outsiders might expect it to be, given the sort of widespread international uh, news coverage. Okay, well, I guess we will hope that it doesn't become a subject of more conversation. Uh, stay safe. Thanks very much for your time, Dan. Thank you. Coming up next, there are many ways that politicians end up in the European Parliament, but sailing around the world isn't usually one of them. Stay tuned after this short message to meet MEP Catherine Chabot and learn about the challenges the EU and others face in cleaning up our oceans. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for policy professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? EU Confidential listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.eu with the code CONFIDENTIAL. Again, that's pro at politico.eu. Now, a few weeks ago, we took you into space in our conversation with European astronauts. Now we're going to take you deep into the ocean in conversation with a member of the European Parliament. Catherine Chabot is an MEP from France's Modem party, part of Emmanuel Macron's Renaissance list of candidates in the last European Parliament election. Three decades ago, she set out on a personal mission to sail solo around the world, and now she's on a political mission to clean up what she observed. Marine litter scattered across the Atlantic Ocean. To tell us more about Chabot and the EU's efforts to rid our oceans of marine litter, we have our sustainability reporter, Eline Schart. Hi, Eline. Hey, Andrew. So tell us a little bit more first about Chabot, the MEP, and this story of how she got to the European Parliament. So Catherine Chabot is a French MEP, and she grew up diving with her father off the coast of Brittany in the northwest of France. My link with the sea began very soon as I dove with my father and I understood very soon that ocean was alive. And I didn't realize that my passion for the ocean began there. 
So in 1997, Chabot became the first woman also to sail a solo navigation around the world, which meant that she was sailing for 140 days straight. I wanted to go alone at sea because you feel really responsible when you are alone and much more for a woman that because when you are on a crew uh, with men, of course, when there is a problem, the men are going to try to find the problem. But, but when you are alone, uh, nobody can help you but yourself. <laughs> so you, you realize that you can achieve all the very big problems you meet on the board because you have no other solution than find a solution. The ocean is... Uh, very impressive, and you you are just accepted in this uh, <laughs> in the nature, and you realize the strength, but also the fragility of the ocean. And what really stuck with her was that in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, she saw all this trash floating around. When I crossed the Atlantic the first time, it was about thirty years ago. It was a very big uh, experience for me and inside the experience there was another one because I crossed waste in the middle of the Atlantic. At that time nobody was speaking about the marine litter problem. It wasn't a problem. So as she says, Eileen, uh, back in the 1990s marine litter wasn't exactly a thing, a big issue. But since then there's been a kind of worldwide movement that's emerged to tackle this problem. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so as you say, plastic pollution has become a very visible problem. We've all seen these pictures of dead whales lying on a beach with stomachs full of plastics and also turtles who are either stuck in fishing nets or who have straws up in their nose. So those kind of images have prompted governments, but also companies to try and find a way to curb this kind of littering. So for Chabot, she was part of this movement as a campaigner and also an advisor to the French government, advising them on oceans and marine protection. Okay, and how did she get from there to becoming a member of the European Parliament? She told us that she was asked three times by different political groups over the years to join the European Parliament. But then back in 2019, she finally agreed. I refused to come here three times before I said yes but two reasons to come here. The first one is the urgency for Europe. Today, I can't afford that European citizens don't take care of this wonderful project that our fathers and mothers uh, built. So the urgency for Europe and the urgency for the ocean. Okay, so she indicates that she wants to help support Europe or the European project, if you like, and then she wanted to do her part as well to help the ocean. Has she been successful in the European Parliament in shaping the EU's rules or approaches to maritime policy? So since she's been elected in 2019, she has worked on, as a rapporteur on a report on marine litter and the fishing industry. And that report was overwhelmingly voted by the whole of the European Parliament in March. Chabot's main point in the report is that you shouldn't only focus on policies that are directly related to the ocean, but that you should think about it a bit more holistically, because also other policy areas like agriculture also really impact the oceans. Even if the European uh, Union had an integrated maritime policy, 
issues are not integrated at all. And it's very clear on the report for which I was a rapporteur, impact of marine litter on fisheries. You understand that the tropics stay in silos and we have to be aware that what is using by our agricultures finish probably one day in the ocean. Up to 80% of the marine litter that we find in the oceans actually comes from land. So it's important to also look at waste management in different countries if you want to address this whole issue. It begins at the top of the problem. I mean, we have to develop a circular economy, but we have to not to produce too much <laughs> products that can't be recycled. And we have to catch all the objects to keep them in the circular economy. And maybe good to add there is that the report is non-binding, so it is supposed to feed in the Commission's work on marine litter. Okay, so it's the European Commission there that has to kind of take the next steps. Exactly. And the Commission is working on different proposals on this. For example, soon they will launch the Zero Pollution Action Plan, which is also going to take a look at pollution of plastics into the ocean. Okay, but as I understand it from your reporting, Eileen, there was a bit of tension over this report, right? Can you explain why not everyone in the European Parliament or in certain industries uh, was a fan of this? So during the drafting of the report, there was a discussion between the different political groups on the role of fisheries and their impact on marine litter. And Chabot really stressed that the fishing industry, they're impacted by marine litter, but they're also one of the sources because a lot of fishing nets end up in the ocean and also other fishing gear. But other parties, especially the European People's Party, the Socialists and Democrats, and also the European Conservatives and Reformists were against pointing at the fisheries industry in the report. So in the end, they had to reach a consensus and it wasn't part of it. We need to push fisheries to more sustainability. So it's a question of quotas, but it's also a question of innovation for the boats and for the fishing gear. What are the main obstacles to making progress here? I mean, this sounds like a goal that everyone in principle would agree and we shouldn't be littering the oceans. What makes it difficult for that to actually happen? What makes it difficult is that it's such a global issue. So even if the EU manages to ban and reduce all of these plastic items ending up in the ocean, we still export a lot of our waste to Asia. Also, at the moment, we export a lot of waste to Turkey. So if waste management in those countries isn't really controlled and legislated, it will still end up in the ocean. So it's a very... You really need global solutions. And at the moment, there isn't really any. Mm. Did Shabo talk at all about how she finds, you know, being a politician, being a, a legislator? Because that's a bit different to being an advisor, right? Where you kind of advise what you think is best. But here, you know, in producing this report, she obviously had to accept, you know, some compromises that ideally she would have preferred not to accept. Well, I think that's funny because she is used to work on this issue from sort of a different position, more as an activist. And you also noticed that when she was presenting the report in the European Parliament, she actually addressed the fact that 
there was this compromise of not mentioning the fishing industry, saying it was a real shame and that she didn't understand her fellow lawmakers. Up until I reached this plenary, I was not allowed to include this in my report, as if this type of pollution didn't exist. This is a better pill to swallow when I see that in this institution, sometimes we don't have any common sense. Now, what are the solutions? So I think that's really nice to see that she still brings more her past of being an activist into the parliament. Okay, fascinating stuff, Eileen. Thanks very much. Thanks, Andrew. And that's all the time we have on this episode of You Confidential. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcast so you never miss an episode. And while you're at it, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment to leave a rating or even a review. Remember, you can always reach us directly via email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.